Broad Street Hockey Radio, that's right, BSH Radio. My name is Bill Matz. I'm your director of fun and games for the evening. Fam, we have a jam-packed show for you today. I'm excited because hockey just keeps getting closer. Uh, I've got my playoff beard going. Charlie typically has a playoff beard, but it looks a little thicker than usual. Mine's coming in nicely. Not just the Clooney. It's not just Clooney stubble. He's got a nice, nice good base going. And if you've seen the pictures of Ivan Provorov, that's why I'm this loud and excited today because... Oh, it felt good. He's got his playoff beard going. Uh, he's out there skating. He's teaching Zamula what's up. Oh, it's going to be fun. Hockey's going to come back. And everything else doesn't matter because hockey's coming back. So let's get right into it, fam. Let's do the intros. Leading it off, the fly by herself, Kelly Hinkle. So I was going to mention Ivan Provorov's face, which in oh, my opinion <laughs> is the best version of his face to date, this one. Um, <laughs> like... Because I have a brand. But anyway, I will, <laughs> at the request of my executive producer, bring up the fact that Pavel Datsuk is absolutely insane. <laughs> because if you yeah. don't know, and I'm assuming everyone listening to this knows, apparently Pavel Datsuk is spending his time in quarantine with some crazy Russian Orthodox priest who believes that COVID-19 is a ploy by the government to get everyone microchipped. So that's happening. Yeah, it really sucks because I really, really, really liked Pavel Datsuk as a player. But yeah. this isn't, like, the first thing. Like, th- this honestly is just, like, it's ridiculous, but it's honestly kind of funny because it's just so ridiculous. But, like, he, there's, there's been other stuff that has come out. Like, apparently he's, like, ridiculously homophobic because the, like, Russian Orthodox sect that he's a part of is ridiculously homophobic. So it just sucks because I loved watching Pavel Datsuk as a player and it turns out that he's a religious fanatic that hates people, which stinks. And that's what's great about jersey numbers. <laughs> he's just Red Wing number 13. He doesn't have to be Pavel Datsuk when he's on the ice. <laughs> and now that he's not on the ice, you can just ignore it. He's just some asshole over in Russia. Yes, yeah. it's bad. Like, the things that, you know, we all know what the like it's like for the LGBT community over in Russia— and it's it's not good. But luckily, he's not like an elected official, and he has no influence over anyone with half a brain. You know? He's just an idiot. Yes. Thankfully, when people are stupid and they have no power, we can just laugh at them. Yeah. Yeah. And, of course, the Athletic.com's own Charlie O'Connor. 
Yeah, I don't have much. I guess it's cool that like the Flyers are sort of back in the area and practicing. That's neat. We got to see uh, Coots uh, do some interviews yesterday. We got to see uh, Ivan Provorov skate around a little bit today, and we realized that, yes, Ivan Provorov, despite the fact that he was skating, did not break quarantine because he clearly has not. He's like <laughs> gone full gone full Samson. A razor will not touch this hair until I win a Stanley Cup. Um but uh, but yeah, uh, it's just it's it's neat that you know things are hopefully getting closer and hopefully all this positive momentum keeps going and uh, and we get hockey back in the next you know month and a half two months or so. I really I had something to ask you, Charlie, and I don't remember what it is, so I'm gonna ask <laughs> Kelly a question I had. Uh-oh. Kelly, was the give Elaine his trophy flyby headline on Monday a Rounders reference? It wasn't on purpose, but I firmly believe that in the back of my mind, it was there. Because I, I feel like I say give that man his money at least once a week in reference to I feel to like you say it quite a bit, so yeah. I just wanted to check. <laughs> I, I, didn't wish, even... I wish it had been like on purpose. It would have been cooler if it was. I didn't even think, like until you know all this momentum really started for Elaine Vigneault as Jack Adams, I didn't really think about it just because... We kind of uh, we kind of discussed it all year. How like okay, if Columbus and this was back in the regular format, if Columbus gets in, it's going to be Tortorella. Paul Maurice is getting the goaltending, and everyone thought he was going to get fired, so it could be him. Just real quick, do you, is is Elaine Vigneault like? You think he's the coach of the year? So I've been thinking a lot. To about me, he it. is. I've been thinking a lot about it, and I understand the case for Tortorella, but like, if you think about how fucked the Flyers were last season. Like, just how completely broken the entire team was. I don't think it's a small feat to have turned them around this completely in one season. And I don't think that, you know, Columbus getting into the playoffs might be as the result of, like, another team not performing as well as they should have, as opposed to John Tortorella just, like, willing a bunch of misfits that lost all of their free agents into success I just don't I get the the argument but I think that even without being a homer about it the argument for Vino is very very good see my my only issue with the Vino case and I, I want to see Elaine Vino win the you know win the Adams because it'd be cool sure, it would be cool to see the Flyers head coach in his first year as the Flyers head coach win the award to me that the best argument against Vino's candidacy is honestly sort of the reverse of what Kelly's saying, which is I don't think the Flyers of last year, true talent-wise, were as bad as they played. Oh, the, no, no, no. I don't— I, the, but, 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 like, yeah. that, that's kind of my point, because the, the big selling point for Vino is look at how he turned around the Flyers. And my argument is that, like, last season the, for the Flyers is basically just a perfect storm of awful, and, like, any— half decent head coach was going to turn around the team to a degree because yeah. there was no way that they were going to have eight goalies get hurt and have the entire organization get flipped on his head by everyone getting fired and the players running around for two months scared they were going to get traded so like I think that's probably the best argument against it is that Vino looks better because last year's team was such a dumpster fire that anyone was going to look okay you know what I mean Yes, but yeah. also, I don't think that any of us expected... Sorry, I interrupted you, Bill. I don't think that no, no, no. any of us expected, except for maybe me because I'm a lunatic, the Flyers to be competing for first in the Metro. Like, I think that we expected them to be better because, as Charlie said, it couldn't possibly be worse. But 
things turned around in a, a real major way. True. They they definitely did. I expected it was it was based on so many ifs. Like if they get the right center depth and Kevin Hayes even you know even with Nolan Patrick not playing at all, Kevin Hayes worked out and they figured out what to do down the middle at least to have two really good top lines and have that center depth. If they get goaltending, well like Charlie said, you know, they didn't go through 10 goalies and the young kid was really good. Ivan Provorov bounced back. We thought he would, but we didn't know. Travis Konechny took a next step. He kind of seemed to plateau a little bit last year. Like, okay, maybe he's just this. But now, you know, he goes to the All-Star game. So I think it was just, if all these things happened, they could absolutely compete for the Metro. And then they did. That has to be at least partially due to the coach, but they did, you know, fill the holes and do the things they needed to do. Yeah, and to me, to me, one of the best arguments for Vigneault is the fact that, like, what the Flyers did in the first half more or less was what I was expecting from the Flyers this year, which was they're better, and they're a bubble playoff team, and they're going to be battling for, you know, for a playoff spot up until the end. That was my expectation for the Flyers. Now, what they did in the second half was just flat-out great, and that's where I think Vigneault really makes his case. And in addition to that, the fact that what the Flyers did in the second half, they did without Nolan Patrick, and they did it without Oscar Lindblom, who, by the way, got diagnosed with cancer midway through the year, which really could have torn this team apart, both from an on-ice perspective and an off-ice perspective, considering how utterly shocking and devastating it was for everyone involved. Despite that, by mid-January, the Flyers are playing like one of the best teams in hockey, and they held that through the pause. And that, to me, is where Vino really makes his case, is that this Flyers team that he turned into really a borderline juggernaut wasn't even at full strength because they didn't have their third center, which meant that they didn't really have a third line center all year. And they didn't have Oscar Lindblom, who was turning himself into a real breakout player when they were playing their best hockey. Like imagine how good this team would be if they had Patrick and Lindblom in the second half. It would have been ridiculous. And Shane Gostisbehere has stunk. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I guess in that, I mean, you could, if you're going to give Vigneault credit for, like, Provorov having the big bounce back year, yeah, you yeah. got to say that, like, well, he didn't figure out how to get the most out of Ghost. And also, right. Vigneault was out all of last season, right? Like, he didn't coach last yes. year. Is Correct. my brain working? So there's, like, a, a nice little narrative there. Guy comes back into the league in a head coaching position and crushes it. You know how they love a narrative. Got to love oh, a Oh, this is what I wanted to ask you, Charlie, now that we can move on. Hi. Uh, because training camp begins July 10, uh, Trudeau has said that Canadian cities are actually going to be open to host uh, as hub cities, so uh, there might be a Canadian city in there. I just read all the amenities that are going to be in the bubble for the NBA playoffs in uh, in Disney World, Charlie. <laughs> you getting dropped in in like in like St. Cloud, Minnesota, or wherever the hell you're going to have to be? You going to get dropped into the bubble? You know, I... If I had to guess, I would say no. My assumption is that in the end, they're not going to let reporters go to this. Okay. And, and truthfully, like, reporters don't have to be there. They really like, look, would it be would it be cool to be there? Would it be cool to be able to watch hockey games in person, you know, and be, I guess, in the bubble? I guess theoretically, if if you were in the bubble and you were quarantining, then you could interview players like normal because you're doing all the same shit that they're doing. But uh, but I just have a feeling that, you know, as hard as I'm sure the the PHWA is going to push for, you know, for beat writer, for certain beat writers to join the team and cover the teams and whatnot. It just, I, I feel like it doesn't, in the end, it's going to make more sense to just have, like, 
Zoom calls or conference calls after every game where we interview the players and whatnot. And look, like access is great and it makes my job easier. At the same time, a lot of what I do is analysis. So I can do that same analysis watching the game on television and stuff and still write good articles. So yeah, it would be kind of cool to, you know, get quarantined in Las Vegas and basically just like do whatever the hell I want for for two months. But I, I... I don't know. I, I, if I had to guess, I would say the reporters are going to be told to stay far away. Yeah, and li- like you said, uh, I always, I always wonder what is the, uh, what is the actual point. I know that, yeah, media serves a role there, but without those post game quotes, my game experience changes very little. You know, yeah. I understand it from an analysis standpoint, but that kind of stuff. All right, so like I said, training camp's going to begin July 10. Teams are at their practice facilities in the small groups doing the individual workouts and everything. We're less than a month away. We're like three weeks or so away. They're going to have to have the next phase planned before like the July 10 phase begins, right? Like, you would think. We're going to know what the cities are in a like at least an outline of a schedule by July 10th? I'm, I mean, I... We have to, right? There has to be a ton of logistics that go into making this stuff happen in one of these cities. So I would imagine they're going to have to choose if they haven't chosen already. Um, the Vegas thing is being kicked around quite a lot, which is interesting because Vegas isn't doing very well from a disease management standpoint. So it would be interesting if they decided to dump them all into a city that's uh, not containing the virus very well. But um, yeah, I mean, I'm assuming that they're going to decide long before we know what it is. They may have already decided. So yeah. Cool. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I, I thought Charlie was saying something and then no, I didn't hear any words. <laughs> uh, I just, I, I just, uh, I, I want to know, like, I, I'm I'm excited now, like, you heard how excited I was to start the show, but I just, okay, then what's the next step? As much as I like seeing, you know, Ivan Provorov uh, puck handling between cones, and listen, I was down on the beach this weekend watching kids having a catch, Ooh. and me and my buddy are commentating it like, <laughs> it, like it's the fucking Super Bowl, like, <laughs> we're about to take bets on it, uh, I, I'm all for watching anything, but I kind of would like to know when this thing is really gonna get going. I still worry that it's not going to. Oh, until they tell, like, until I see yeah. the puck drop, I'm going to, I'm going to be, I'm going to remain cautiously optimistic. Because. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I presume they're still working on, like, the financials, which is a big deal. Like, it's not, it's not as. Look at baseball. Yeah, it's a yeah, real well, big it's, deal. I was going to say, it's not as bad as baseball, because yeah. the thing with baseball is baseball doesn't have a salary cap, which means the revenue sharing is more nebulous, which means there's a lot more negotiating that has to be done, whereas in hockey, it's pretty much just, you know, split down the middle, you got Esker, you got all that stuff, so there's already a framework in place, but there's still a lot of things they have to decide. They have to decide on, you know, players with pre-existing conditions. They have to decide on how they're going to do testing and everything like that, and how they're going to, you know, convince skeptics players that this is actually safe and a smart thing to do so there's a lot that still needs to be needs to be negotiated and i assume that's what they're doing right now at the same time yeah it seems like their target is july 10th to uh to get going and you know we're talking about less than a month at this point um i'll tell you what i think is going to be a contentious point that hasn't really been brought up yet um this round robin tournament and the play-in series those are not quote the stanley cup playoffs 
which means their TV rights are not determined by pre-existing contracts. They could end up on ESPN or something. That's a new infusion of money that didn't exist before. Mm. They're going to fight over that money. That's an interesting thought. Because it isn't. It, they've made very clear that it is neither regular season nor playoffs. And that's, I think that's like the point of doing it that way so they can mm. get like another, another TV deal on top of stuff or get competing networks and all that. But we'll see. I hope everything works out. I sure as hell hope this doesn't turn into a baseball labor dispute because as much as I'm pro-labor, I don't want to do fucking podcasts about this shit. It, <laughs> no. I, I really, really little, don't. I could go a little while. <laughs> I, I know you could, Kelly. I just don't. <laughs> Nobody I wants listen. to hear it, though, and we need the audience. For yeah, no sake. one wants to hear it when it's like legitimate rich people. Even if like, oh, it's millionaires versus billionaires and most of the athletes aren't actually millionaires. They're still hundred thousandaires. They still make way more than 99% of our audience. <laughs> people just don't want to hear that shit, no matter how much, you know, the owners are evil. All right. So I have a real, real easy question for you guys. Coots is winning the Selkie, right? I think so. Yeah, Charles. I think he's going to win it. I, I, I really do. Part. Well, I just I just feel like everything is trending in his direction. The Flyers were good this year. Uh, Couturier, did, he won the, uh, the midseason PHWA poll. He won by a lot the, uh, the, the athletic poll that we did. Um, which I guess we did right after the uh, the season was paused. So there were no other games after that. So presumably not, not many people had their opinions changed from the middle of March to this week when people put in their ballots. So yeah, I think he's going to win it. Um, you know, they even did a, uh, they, I think it was Custance, Craig Custance did a, did a poll of like 31 head coaches and I think 30 LeBron. responded. Was it LeBron? It was one. It yeah. was one of our our writers. Yeah, um, our national guys. But did you um, call him LeBron. Yeah, I did. I don't <laughs> care. LeBron. 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 But anyway, uh, I think they was like split down the middle. They were like ten vote, ten coaches voted Couturier, and like eleven voted Bergeron. No, it was. I was actually going to bring this up because that's the only thing that made me a little bit nervous. Is I think it was like fourteen to ten in Bergeron's favor and I was like come on yeah I don't think we're still doing this I don't think Bergeron's gonna win it because he missed he missed time and didn't he miss a bunch of time he always he always misses like 10 or so games like he's older now that's the that's the thing that I don't think people fully get about Bergeron and like he's still awesome don't get me wrong but he is a little bit older which means he misses some games his ice time per game is down justifiably so and plus it's not like Boston is even using him in a super defensive role anymore. They've basically just decided, again, not because they're wrong, they're right, this is the best way to do it, but they've decided they have the best line in hockey when it comes to, you know, Pasternak, Bergeron, and Marchant, and rather than ask them to take tough shifts, why don't we just have them score all of the goals? And it works, and they're awesome, but... It's hard to say that Bergeron is being used in a shutdown role when he's really not being used in a shutdown role, aside from the fact that he tends to face teams' first lines because they're the first line of the Bruins. But it's not like he's taking every single extra defensive zone draw. Like, Bruce Cassidy's trying to get him out there for offensive zone draws because that line scores all the goals. Again, makes sense, but to me, that cuts down on his his selkie resume just a bit. And I think voters understand that to a degree whereas i think coaches still look at it as like well patrice bergeron's still the best two-way forward in the game so he's the one who gets the vote right it's like well and maybe like, yeah, but i don't I, think I, this it, year he's been 
we know how much these things are based on reputation, like all awards across Christ. The O-linemen that make the Pro Bowl every year in the NFL. It's like, oh, yeah, I know Jonathan Ogden. Like He's been retired 10 years. <laughs> yeah, I voted for him. Like I, So we know how that goes. But Couturier was the odds-on favorite at the midpoint, and we've been confident this whole time. And that's when I got nervous because yesterday I saw the NHL Fan Choice Awards <laughs> and Gritty didn't win the Best Mascot Award. Yeah, that's Some blob out in Vegas won. That's a travesty. I, 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 am, I, am, calling, I am calling that that was like either, either Vegas fans just flooded the ballots or the NHL felt like Gritty was getting too big for his britches and decided to <laughs> knock him down a peg or two. <laughs> No, that's I really think it's like uh it's like the LeBron syndrome. Like LeBron gets judged on himself. So if it's not his best season, someone else gets to win the MVP even though he's the best. Like I really unless they change this to the Gritty Award, there's no reason he doesn't win it every year. Like if they just go, yes, Gritty's number 1 and the other 30 teams and when Seattle comes in, 31 other teams are competing against Gritty. Vegas has a pretty rabid fan base, so I figure they, they just they they probably launched some like I don't know Reddit based mission to make sure that their mascot won the award, and that's what it happened. Yeah, I had no idea these fan choice awards were going on, Me so either. it's in part my fault. I did not vote. The Flyers <laughs> didn't come away empty-handed though. Voracek ran away with the best beard award. The funniest player went to Kevin Hayes, and somehow. The Wells Fargo Center was voted best building. Now, see, if this, that this part, is lit, that's wild. This is why none of this makes sense. Why Gritty didn't win? Like, clearly, yeah. clearly, Flyers fans came out in droves to vote on this thing because the Wells Fargo Center does not deserve to be best building, especially not this year when it wasn't even full for ninety-five percent of the games. So clearly, Flyers fans were voting. So the fact that Gritty did not win, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm screaming bullshit here. I have an that's alternate theory. Okay. I feel like if I'm a fan of another team, I love when my team plays at the Wells Fargo Center because it's a fucking tomb and there's like absolutely no advantage to the home team playing well, there. So listen, as much as we have talked about the atmosphere at the Wells Fargo Center, they did go 25-6-4 and four at home this year. Uh, I, I thought there was an uptick in enthusiasm at the games. Uh, I love the wooing personally. We it's do fun. have gritty, so I, I, I think it's I think it's on the upswing. They updated the building, so it's not like I know it's crazy because in our heads, like oh, 1996, that was like five years ago. No, <laughs> like it's an, it's actually an old building now. Like it's probably one of the oldest buildings in the league. They upgraded it. They updated it. So I, I guess I can see it. Uh, it's just. We've talked so much about how the atmosphere at games in recent seasons hasn't been great. It's interesting that they won best building in this fan vote. And I do think, I do think too, that like Kelly loves to say, like the Wells Fargo Center is a tomb. I do. I think, I think part of the problem is that like it used to be incredible. Yes. And now, relative to the rest of the league, it's fine. But for us, it's awful because we remember when it was amazing. But, like, I still – I think the Wells Fargo Center probably is still a top half of the NHL atmosphere arena in the league. I, I really have little doubt about that. I mean, look, there are a lot of arenas that the atmosphere is non-existent. So it's not – I don't think, like the, like, the Wells Fargo Center is an awful atmosphere. It's just not as good as it used to be from what we remember when we were kids. 
And in recent years, we've seen teams with like above and beyond atmospheres make runs with Nashville, Vegas, even Chicago. They Winnipeg. finally started to draw and it became a good atmosphere. Like, so we've seen like what it really is at the top lately. And I, I think we're just a, yeah, because it was so good, we kind of kick ourselves that it isn't that way anymore because it's not the spectrum. Um, I want to shift gears a little bit here. I want to keep talking awards though. The Hart Trophy. Um, I, I always, I, I never really know how to quantify like most valuable. It seems to always come down to like raw point totals and things like that. So just to start, I want you both give me like your top three Hart Trophy. Uh, I mean, as someone who doesn't have to really consider this, I would go uh, Panarin, Dreisaitl. Oh God, who would be my third? I don't know. You have Hellebuck here in the outline, and it makes a lot yeah, of sense. Yeah, I wanted to get to that because I didn't think either of you would name him. I wouldn't have had I not read it here on this paper, but I'm not sure who my third would be. So I believe I am technically not allowed to release oh, my... Oh, you're not my, allowed. Right, right, right. My rules. Yeah. However, I mean, there, I, I can... I can talk about things that maybe would have people guess what my votes are. Um, but how, it, it, how important is raw points total to you, Charlie? It's important. Um, it's important because I do think it's a proxy of, you know, just how active a player was in terms of creating offense for his team. I don't think points are irrelevant by any means. That said, I think defense matters as well, and I think teammates matter too. You know, if you're playing on great lines with great teammates, then you're in – you know, inevitably going to rack up more points. I, I do. I, I am fascinated by the the Hellebuck debate because it's something that I really had to grapple with when I was um, when I was trying to come to uh, to terms on who I was going to vote for and what my top five was going to be because that's what we have to do. We have to vote on yeah, our top, top five. five. Um, and the thing with the thing with Hellebuck is just it goes back to my thing with goalies because you know if you really boil it down. If you're really just purely talking about value added to a team, every year the most valuable player is the best goalie. Like that it because the best goalie plays the most minutes and has an outsized impact on the on on the outcome of games to a level that forwards and defensemen just can't. So to me, because of that, if I'm going to vote a goalie number 1, the goalie has to have had like a truly incredible year because to me, it's just, it's almost like it's too easy to just be like, Oh, well it's always the goalie. And you know, if someone has that feeling that uh, if someone has that feeling that, well, every year I'm going to vote for the goalie I mean, props to them for being consistent to me though, I don't know. It's, it's hard for me to just decide that, well, it's gotta be the goalie every year though. I did vote Hellebuck in my top five. I will say that. Hellebuck was, was not my number one, but I did put him in my top five. I am not sold on him as the number one, but I just didn't think he'd be in either of your top three as just the finalist. And so I wanted to make the case. Um, like, yeah, you guys know I hate goalies. And, yeah, I do think you can kind of lean on it too much. Like, oh, well, yeah, the best goalie, sure. He's, he's the most valuable. Like, I think you have to play you know, in a shortened season, the equivalent of, like, 70 games to even be considered. You have to be that workhorse. You can't be, you know, a 55-60 game starter and get in there, stuff like that. But just looking at Winnipeg's season and, like, go going back to the beginning of the year, 
Like we all picked Paul Maurice as a guy who was gonna get fired. Yeah. He got a contract yeah. extension, and everybody in like you know, not even the stats community, just people who look at statistics, went, "Oh yeah, well, look at what Hellebuck's doing." And yeah, Paul Maurice looks like a genius because they're winning games when they shouldn't be. Winnipeg has won 21 games when being outshot. The league leader has 24, so they're right there in that. Uh, the Jets have a sub 49 uh, Corsi four percentage. They're averaging three goals a game, which is in the bottom half of the league. They have the lowest expected goals for percentage in the league, but they've got a plus 13 total goal differential and are only minus four at 5-on-5. Hellbuck leads the league in shots against and saves at 5-on-5. At all strengths, he's second in goals saved above average, and no goalie in the league has faced or stopped more high-danger shots. Other than Panarin, I can't say there's a single player more uh, valuable to his team. Like, yes, Leon Dreisaitl, amazing year. If Edmonton were to just cut him loose, they'd still have the league's leading score. Yeah, yeah. No, that, that's that's huge. And one of the things, too, that, that gives me pause about voting a goalie number one especially is that, like, I am obviously a big-time advanced stat person, but... There are certain positions. I think I think you just have to look at advanced stats, even if you're a supporter of them. You look at them in the in the sense of like, which which stats am I most certain of their validity, if that makes sense. And to me, like I'm most certain that advanced stats do a great job of capturing like the the value that forwards add. That would that would be what I would say I'm most certain. Like if I look at like at, at wins above replacement and I look at you know play driving ability and whatnot and I look at that for forwards I feel fairly confident that that's an accurate measurement of what they've actually done and the value they've added to their team defense is is a little bit of a tear down because while I do believe that those stats are extremely valuable and I, I value them highly there's a little bit of an element of you know they're not necessarily the ones that are carrying the load in the offensive zone so I wonder how much of their value added is actually them and how much of it is the forwards who are doing the bulk of the work, keeping possession and creating high quality chances and things like that. So they're just like a tier down in terms of just how confident I am when I look at like the goals above replacement rankings for defensemen. And I know for a fact that, oh, he's number one. So he must be the most valuable. I'm just, there's, there's a little bit of skepticism there. And for goalies, for me, there's the most skepticism because I just feel like, Yes, the numbers we have are useful, and they can tell us things like shot location, and they can tell us things like how many high-quality scoring chances they face, but we still need to get more granular on figuring out just how high-quality those chances are. And, and, you know, the, the importance of uh, pre-shot passing movement and the importance of screens and deflections and things like that. And to me, it just makes it it makes it hard for me to lean on, like, the main case for Hellebuck is like, well, he leads the league in goals above in goals above replacement, and he's stopped so many shots relative to uh, you know to, to goal state above average and whatnot. And those are completely and totally valid ways to look at it. But I'm just I'm hesitant to be a hundred percent certain that that makes Hellebuck definitely a more valuable player than say Artemi Panarin, who I will say was my number. Yeah, one. I think the more like the the stats I'm looking at more. As Kelly screams at me to take a break, and we'll do that uh, in just a second. Uh, the stats I'm looking at more are like the team stats, and then how, like when you have, when you only have, 
you know, 48.5% of the total 5-on-5 shot attempts, that means the other team's getting a lot of chances. When you face the most high-danger chances, that means your teammates ain't helping you that all, all that much. So that's more what I'm looking at uh, is the total more than just the individual stats with Hellybuck. Uh, and just even I know goalie wins are a team stat, but he's picked up 31 of the team's 37 wins, and the backup is 6-7-1. and one. Uh, It seems like he's going above and beyond to me. I don't, I mean, it's, you can't argue with the facts. He is extremely important to Winnipeg's success this season as much as they've had. But I think, I mean, Charlie's right. It's, it's really hard to accurately measure a goalie's effectiveness. And I don't know, it's, goalies, goalies win the Vezina. That's just kind of how it works. Like, yeah, and I, I've always, heart. I've always felt that way in baseball. Like when a pitcher wins MVP, I'm like, yeah, like maybe they started 33 games. It's different in hockey a little for me. Yes, they have their own award, but like I, I, they play every minute and they yeah. will, you know, the best ones can play 70 plus games. I'm not saying it should go to a goalie every year because I don't think they deserve it, but goalies do add a ton of value I just think when one is the driving force of his team it should be considered all right we're going to take a break and we're going to continue some goalie talk on the other side my favorite stuff uh just stay with us through this break and we will be back in just a minute okay everybody we are here and now we're going to go on to the Vezina and like I was just saying um you know the MVP the Hart Trophy uh it's tough to give to a goalie because you're just grading on a different scale. Like, and defensemen win it even less. Only two defensemen, I believe, have won the Hart Trophy uh, since the 40s. Their names yeah, are Bobby Pronger. Orr and Chris Pronger. Pronger, <laughs> the yeah. legend. Yeah. Uh, so it, defensemen win it even less than goaltenders. But thinking about the Vezina, we were just like, that's the goalie's award, and the best goalie gets it. Say a goalie does win the MVP. Is he automatically the Vezina winner? I mean, gotta be. Yeah. Like, how right? could he? How could he not be the best goaltender if he was, in fact, the most valuable player in the entire league? Yeah. It's kind of impossible. What, what if, like, okay? I mean, they could um, vote a different way because they're all crazy. Sorry, Charlie, but it ought to follow logically that the MVP <laughs> would be the best goalie. Like, say Helia Buck is having this season, and Winnipeg is top three in their division. It's a regular year. He starts. Let's call it 72 games uh, and just and just kills it. But Andre Vasilevsky puts up insane fucking numbers to the point that you're like, um, I don't know if he's... It's Tampa is so stacked and Winnipeg isn't. Is, like, is there some sort of balance you could strike there? Yeah, this is... So this is something that Charlie might be able to answer since he has to research this stuff for his job. Um, I saw a tweet randomly once the the Vezina stuff started to get discussed about how like it was something about like how long are we going to pretend that Andre Vasilevsky is actually a good goaltender and it made me think a little bit like is he actually an outstanding goaltender or is he like Martin Brodeur before him a product of the team that's playing in front of him and I don't know the answer to that because I don't look into things ever but it was an interesting question because I never considered that he wasn't extremely good yeah, this this again goes back to 
what I was saying earlier about having me, despite the fact that I very much am an advanced stat person, having a healthy degree of skepticism when it comes to the findings of certain positions. Because, like, Vasilevsky's a classic example in that the, the public numbers imply that Vasilevsky, like, isn't that good. And in reality, it's just that the Tampa Bay defense is way better than people give it credit for and actually that's the reason why every year he puts up 920 save percentages and my my response is maybe but i i guess i'm just i don't find it a hundred percent convincing whereas like if i saw that kind of data for a forward like well this forward actually isn't that good because his defense is bad and all this other stuff i'm much more willing to just accept that because i trust the numbers more for that position whereas with vasilevsky it's like yeah the numbers kind of say he's just okay yet i watch him play and he looks great scouts watch him play and he looks great general managers think he looks great and like yes there's an element of appeal to authority here but like there's also an element of I'm not going to totally throw out my preconceived notion about a goalie just because numbers that haven't even been perfected yet for the position say he's average, if that makes sense. So, like, I'm willing to accept that Vasilevsky isn't probably isn't as good as his reputation would say. I'm not willing to accept the idea that Vasilevsky is, like, actually below average. So without asking you to name names, since you do have to vote on this award. Um, but we don't vote on the Vesna. Oh, you don't? No, I believe that that's... GMs? Uh, I think, yeah, I think it's GMs who vote on the Vesna. What we do do, however, is we do vote on the all-star teams. Mm. And the all-star team involves us having to rank our top three goalies. So I sort of vote on the Vesna, but not actually for the Vesna. Do you just, do you just go by, like, save percentage or the, uh, the other one? Goal saved above average? Like, how do you, how do, you do it? They're my two primary, yeah. Okay. I mean, my, my thing is that I look at them kind of in tandem, and I, I, I would say I lean towards goals saved above average, which I think is the best one we have. But if, like, I, I'm, I'm inherently skeptical if a goalie has, like, a 909 save percentage, but his goal saved above average is, like, through the roof. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, I kind of wonder if maybe that's missing something. Um, You know, there's, that, that, like, I don't know if that team was giving up that bad shot quality to make it so this guy is actually the third best goalie in hockey, even though his save percentage kind of looks like meh. Um, and then by the same token, the flip side of that with Vasilevsky, like if Vasilevsky has a 925 save percentage, but the numbers say like, oh, he only saved one more goal above average. It's like, shit, like how good do these numbers think that Tampa Bay's defense was? Like, I don't think, I think they're good. I don't think they're one of the best defenses of the last 10 years. You know what I mean? So I kind of look at everything in tandem. Um, but I would say I lean towards goal saved above average uh, more than anything else because it's the best thing we have. It's just that I'm skeptical that the best thing we have is actually amazing. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I was just like, I was wondering, like, the the Vezina is to the best goalie, and a guy who's the best might not be the most important part of his team. Could be. You know, like, I mean, yeah. That like, is- Dominic Hossack should have been MVP every year he played for Buffalo. Like, if he was healthy, he was the MVP. I mean, we That's have the- that discussion about forwards all the time. Like, is the best player in the league the most valuable player in the league? Like, there's definitely an argument to have there because they might. Like you said about Edmonton, I would argue that Connor McDavid is more important to that team than Leon Dreisaitl, even if Dreisaitl's having a better season points-wise. Like, you know. So the argument can be made if 
you wanted to. <laughs> I don't know why you would. Yeah, I, I don't. I I'm really just looking for ways to keep Oilers off of the uh, the Hart Trophy stage. It's important, and <laughs> I, I yeah, I think it's fun to talk about like you know a goalie that no one really cares about because <laughs> it's in Winnipeg. Like that's funny to me. All right. So speaking of things no one cares about, what the fuck is going on in Buffalo? What in the world? What a fucking mess. Uh, Good lord. So they fired um basically Everyone. everybody. <laughs> uh it's it's just the it's just the owners hanging out pretty much. Uh they've brought in their fourth GM since uh February fourth GM since November of 2013. So yeah, they've gone since February of 2013. They've gone through four GMs and six coaches. Uh, the last two GMs only got three years apiece. Uh, the coaches, it's it seems like a never ending since Lindy Ruff. They're just turning over coaches every two years. Uh, good luck to Ralph Kruger. Uh, <laughs> you'll be unemployed probably in a year. Um, it's you know, Jack Eichel's constantly going on about how he needs things to change there. What like, what are they gonna do? What they said they were gonna keep the GM, and then when everything, uh, and then when everything got pushed back, and the draft is gonna be much later, they're like, oh, we have more time. Well, instead of using that time wisely, they're gonna get rid of everybody and try to go with fewer scouts, smaller departments. Like definitely the answer. There's no way this is a good idea, right? So we talk all the time about how the thing that keeps Edmonton from being a good team with all of the talent that they have is the fact that the ownership and the top-level executives of that team are a mess and have been a mess for a long time. I'm pretty sure the Pagulas and Buffalo have surpassed Edmonton as far as bad management goes at this point. Like, they are just an absolute joke. And these are, like, two rich people who are a little too intent on having themselves be a part of the story. Like just own the fucking team, hire people that are smarter than you and step away. Cause no one wants to hear what you have to say. No one gives a fuck about you, but they are very intent. It seems to make the story about them. And in doing yeah. so they're completely ruining their asset. So good job. Good job guys. Yeah. I don't, I don't really know what they're doing because the thing the the weird thing about the pool is, is that like, this isn't the only team they own. Yeah. They own the Bills, and they've done a decent job with the Bills. They're like the, oh, ma- they're like the main benefactors for Penn State hockey, which they've, like, been able to help them build into, like, a legitimate college hockey powerhouse. So it's not, like, it it's, doesn't seem to me it's that they're inherently cheap. Like, they're willing to spend money. It's just, for this team, it seems like... They've just gotten to the, like, this, what happened yesterday really strikes me, strikes me of them as them being cheap, because mm. it seems like they weren't going to fire the GM, and then they wanted him to fire people, and he wouldn't do it, so they fired everybody. Like, that really was my read of the situation, just because of how many people they cut, and I don't, I mean, I get that it's a pandemic, I get that, obviously, hockey isn't being played, so revenues are down, but I guess I don't understand why... You know, two people who basically funded the creation of a Division One hockey program have decided that they're going to cut corners on their NHL team. It just strikes me as weird. All of this strikes me as extremely weird. 
that's all the firings. Kevin Adams, his first day on the job as new general manager, had to make the phone calls telling everyone, hey, um, good luck out there. <laughs> what an absolute mess. And the thing is, like, okay, so they've, they've run other businesses well. But, like, everyone shit on Ryan O'Reilly for complaining about having to play there. And it's pretty obvious that he was just saying the facts. Like, it seems like it's absolutely miserable to play there. And so they're doing something differently with this hockey team that I don't understand. I don't know if it's like they just decided that this one was going to be the one that they really got hands-on with, so they are fucking it up top to bottom. I don't know, but, like, it can't be long before Jack Eichel is demanding a trade is what I'm trying to get to. Yeah, like, they... In the in the piece I read, which was uh, John Vogel on The Athletic, they were quoted about why they fired Jason Botterill, and it was like, oh, yeah, well, we just felt like we weren't being heard. Uh, we wanted a more of a voice. Nobody wants well, to hear you. Well, you hired him to do a job. Yeah. Why have a general yeah. manager if your opinion is the one that matters? You no, be the GM. No, if, if anything, what, what they're doing in Buffalo, in a weird sort of way, if it reminds me of any other owner in any other team, it kind of reminds me of Dan Snyder with the Washington Redskins. Like, it yes. reminds me of that whole thing where, like, they're just meddling so much. And possibly, maybe it comes from a good place. Maybe it's because they care so much that they just, they want this team to win so bad and they get so frustrated because they're not winning right away. But in reality, they're just making things worse. Yeah, and that probably stems from the two of them thinking that they're the smartest people in the room at all times. Yeah. Which... And a lot of times you're you're just not. Sometimes you got to let the hockey men do hockey men things and stay the fuck out of it. So this is something, and like this is in, by no means like a uh, a defense of of Jason Botterill because like what the hell did he do? Uh, <laughs> like the piece says, the Sabers didn't get any better during his three seasons and were a financial mess. The former GM spent over the salary cap this season earning an overage penalty that will come out of Oof. next season's cap. If you spent over the in over the salary cap and got that return on investment, yes, your job is probably in jeopardy. Yeah. But but like every every quote from uh, other sources in the league says a GM needs 5 years. There's no way to really like implement your system, implement your culture in this little amount of time, and now they've done it twice in a row, firing a GM in three years. Listen, yes, sometimes you have to cut your losses, but, man, stability really matters. They got to do a Flyers. Like, the Flyers hired Ron Hextall and decided that they were going to give him time to do what he wanted to do. Eventually, we got tired of his bullshit, but he did get a very (laughs) large stretch of time to completely change the way the team operated. and. I, I do think that you can't, if you're trying to turn a team around, like if we're talking about a team that's already good and you're just firing guys left and right, it probably doesn't matter that much. But if you're really trying to turn a team around, you do kind of have to put that in the hands of one person with a singular vision and let them execute it if you think it's a good idea. You can't just switch it around all the time. You're never going to get anywhere. Yeah, it's, I mean, far be it for me to, to act like uh you know, that Jason Botterill was this amazing general manager. I don't think he was. And I think the 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 big the two big things that get cited for him as his two biggest screw ups 
one is probably more universally agreed than the other. The first is the the Ryan O'Reilly trade, which objectively yeah. was a disaster. Very at bad. the same at the same time, I mean, and the, the return that he got was terrible. But that was partially influenced by the fact that O'Reilly essentially asked for a trade. Or, no, it's like the Bob Rovsky situation. What are you going to do? Everyone know he wants out. Yeah, like he essentially just said he didn't love the game anymore because Buffalo was such a dumpster fire, which, I mean, I guess that could partially be pinned on the GM for making the team into a dumpster fire. But I believe he had only been there for a year when O'Reilly asked for the trade. So poor execution, but I can sort of understand, you know, why he was sort of back into a corner there. And the other is just the fact that, and this is more just Buffalo fans being angry, which I get it. We were there. But there's also just the fact that why hasn't he traded Rasmus Ristolainen yet? And that's where a lot of the hate, like, it, it is so Andrew McDonald-ish because there's just an L, there's, there's a section of the Buffalo Sabres fan base that, like, the only question that matters is, for, for anybody in the front office, is, do you think Rasmus Ristolainen is good? And if the person in the front office says, yes, I think he's good, it's immediately, we'll fire him. We'll fire him. Like that's like that is the litmus test. It's, I mean, they're not if, wrong. It's if you think Rasmus. <laughs> Do you Ristolainen think Kevin is Adams a, is was a decent hockey that? player? Like, yeah. If you think Rasmus line is a decent hockey player, you don't deserve a job. And Jason Botterill failed that test, so he deserved to be fired. But I have a feeling that like most people in the hockey world believe that Rasmus line is a decent player. He is so the new, he's the new Jack Johnson. Yeah, exactly. And like it sucks, and it's annoying that the blind spot clearly is there, but. I just don't know if, like, I don't know how many people they would have to go through to find someone who doesn't think Rasmus Alignan is pretty good. You know what I mean? Isn't this new guy that they hired, like, a complete not-hockey entity at all whatsoever? Well, he played for the Hurricanes oh, in, like, he? the 2000s, so he is a hockey well, He's guy. been in a lot of different positions that aren't necessarily, like, hockey ops, it seems. Mm, okay. Like he's but been he in, knows uh, the game. That's yeah. what's important. Yeah, but he's been he on, like, the, the business side in a couple of different ventures with the Pagoulas. Um, they say there was no search. This is an all-in-house hire, very, very recent. I just – it's it's just funny to me that as the rest of the league is, like, getting ready to go, this, this disgrace of an organization is like, yes, uh, the season restarts in, you know, three weeks for everybody, but the worst possible teams were one of them. Everyone's fired. <laughs> <laughs> like just the, just the reasoning of well we found out we had more time to prepare for the draft so guess what we're firing our whole scouting department because it wasn't just the gm no, it was, was basically the whole organization their ahl coaches and stuff like it was it was it's like scorched earth yeah it's yeah, gonna just, be interesting to see how they come out of this yeah they just don't seem to know like if they should tear it down, if they're good enough to spend. Like, they spent over the cap this year. How? You stink. Yeah. Why did you even think that was a good idea? As yeah. much as we, like, got on Hextall at the end, like, okay, turn the page, there was a point where we knew what chapter we were in, at least. This is our bad time. They don't yeah. seem to know that. All right. Let's move on to uh, some more stolen content ideas that I came up with to wrap this up. I thought this would be fun. Uh, I read this one in the uh, in the in Seamus Clancy's newsletter. Uh, it's two dollars. I recommend it. But uh, he's been running features on the worst games he's ever been to, uh, and then when uh, you know the NBC account uh, tweeted asking about the worst moment in Flyers history. I figured this would be fun. 
Uh, but just to let you know, it's not all negative. Unless something huge happens next week, we'll be talking about our favorite games we've been to personally. <laughs> uh, but if you're in need of positivity right now, may I suggest Charlie's 10 Best Playoff Series of the Last 20 Years. It was an excellent read, folks. So, uh, yeah. So, uh, I just want to know, like, games you've been to, like, bought a ticket to, were a fan at, what was, like, the worst moment game, like, game you've been to in Flyers history? Okay, so, so I, I could, Go ahead, Charlie. You, go, go, go for it, Kelly. You uh, I was just... I was talking to Bill before we started recording about how when I saw his question, I was really trying to think, like, okay, which games did I go to? Like... A Flyers like eight one loss or some something ridiculous like that. I was just going through my brain trying to think of a game where I had just a terrible time, and then I was like, "Wait a second, I was at the game where the other team won the Stanley Cup." <laughs> so that was, I think, that was the worst one that I've been to. That one sucked the most. They just keep making us relive it. I, I swear they replay this game in goal every day on NBC or on Twitter. Please let me forget it happened. I beg of you. It was goal of the decade, even though it, no one even knew it was a fucking goal. It's a shitty goal. Yeah. Oh, great. A superstar scored on a men's league goalie. I can't believe it. Why didn't he have 19 goals in that series? <laughs> oh, God. I just... Ugh. How about you, Charlie? Um, I can think of two. Uh, the first I can think of was uh, actually the very first Flyers playoff game I went to which I was looking back up a couple days ago because I was trying to see if I remembered it correctly, and I didn't really remember it correctly, but uh, it still just sticks in my head. It was uh, Game 3 of the uh, 2008 Eastern Conference Final against the Penguins, and they the Flyers had lost the first two games. They were coming back home, and I just remember being in the stands. I remember I bought the ticket from a it was like a whim purchase i had some extra money at the time because i was working on campus in college and i had some extra money and uh, and this girl who was in one of my uh, poli sci classes i was friends with her on facebook and she like put her ticket up for sale on facebook and i just on a whim was like screw it i'll go you know it's like the end of the semester why not so i bought a single ticket and went to the game and i just remember being so unbelievably frustrated because the Flyers, I didn't think were playing poorly, but Marc-Andre Fleury was having, like, the perfect game. And I looked back at the numbers, and it's not like he even made a ton of saves. But I remember thinking that there were so many times where the Flyers would take a shot that should have created a rebound and should have created more high-quality chances, and Fleury just swallowed it up. And it just was one of the most frustrating games to watch because every time it seemed like the Flyers were buzzing, Flurry would just kill it. And they, they think they ended up losing 4-1, to one, and it was just a real downer of a game because you knew they weren't going to come back from a 3-0 deficit to, uh, to beat the Penguins. I believe they, they ended up winning game four, but they lost in five. Um, so that game. And then also, um, there was a game during the 2009-2010 season. Uh, the Flyers are playing the Canucks, and they just look so lifeless and so dead. And I remember I was leaving, I'll never forget this, I was leaving the arena with my buddy Steven, who was a Canucks fan, that's why I went to the game. Um, and I looked at him, I'm like, that's the kind of game that gets a coach fired. And like a day later, they fire John Stevens. <laughs> <laughs> Nailed it. Yeah, That. Uh, okay, those are good ones. I have, and like this is a game I was at, but this goes down as the worst playoff series ever played. Uh, the 2002 series against Ottawa. I, for one, am um, shocked that you've chosen an Ottawa game. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, this started. This might be the beginning of like my lifelong hate. Now that I think about it, it's April 26th, 
2002, it's Game 5. Let's let's do a little backstory here. So Game 1 of this series, the Flyers won in overtime 1-0 on the strength of the only playoff goal Rusty Fedotenko scored with the Philadelphia Flyers before going on to play key roles on cup winners elsewhere. Um, that was it. one nothing. Game 1. The next three games, they scored zero goals. They lost all three. Three nothing. They went so uh, game five. Brian Boucher gets the start after Czech Monik yelled at his teammates in game four because you know they went three straight games without scoring a goal. <laughs> he mean, might have been a little bit justified. Yeah, he he might have been a dick, but he wasn't wrong. Yeah, like no. this is one of those. It's one of those broken clock things. Like yeah, he was nuts, but like. They got shut out three straight playoff games, and they scored one goal in the first one. That's not good. So, uh, yeah, game five comes around. Flyers score early. Dan McGillis on the power play from Desjardins and Oates. Side note, yes, trading Olette and a first, second, and third round pick for Oates may have been dumb, but Oates did pick up assists on both Philly goals in this series. So that's like efficiency or something. (laughs) Really got some value there. Well, Daniel Alfredson tied up the tied up the game late in the first, and then nothing happened for the next two periods. Literally nothing. Then, in overtime, Keith Primo, who publicly criticized Bill Barber after the game, Rude. Yeah, it was Bill it was Bill Barber's fault you scored zero goals. He took a cross checking penalty in overtime, setting up, of course, Marty Havlet's series ending power play goal. In a game that went sixty seven thirty three. The shots were 27-26. This was a fucking terrible game, a terrible series, the end of the Bill Barber tenure in Philadelphia. It mm. was just all around, ugh. That so you, 04 you want- series that we all love so much and that 04 run, it was great. The thing we don't remember about it is that it was like after a culmination of disappointment after disappointment yeah. for the previous 10 years, they finally did something worth enjoying. Yeah, you know what one of the, like, under-the-radar, like, things that I don't want to admit to myself, but I know deep down are true is about the Flyers during this era? Like, Mm -hmm. I constantly, constantly rip on the New Jersey Devils for how boring they are and ruining the game and the trap was awful, and all of this is true. The Ken Hitchcock Flyers were pretty fucking boring, too. They oh, really yeah. were. He hated no. a goal. He hated scoring goals. <laughs> it was, like, the worst possible thing that he could imagine his team doing was scoring goals. That's why we no, lost like Patrick those, Sharp. You go back to those playoff games, and, yeah, it was, uh, like, that 4 run. They, the post-Lindros era, they were not, like, a fun team to watch. They were, they were blocking shots, doing all that shit hoping to, like, get a power play like they did in this game. That was it. Get a power play. Maybe we can poke one in. Like, Dan McGillis and Ruslan (laughs) Fedotenko scored your only goals in a five-game series. Yeah. Like, all of those those teams post, like, post the cup run in 97. And these are the teams that got me into hockey. I mean, I loved hockey. I loved watching the Flyers. But, like, I went back and looked at the numbers for the uh, the 2000, the 99-2000 Flyers team. I don't even remember who coached that team. It wasn't Hitch. It was somebody else. Um, but the 99-2000, was it Ramsey who was, who was 99-2000? I don't remember off the top of my head. But I remember going back and looking at the numbers of the Devils that year to be like, okay, just how, how stingy were they? And they were. They were extremely stingy from a goal and a shot standpoint. 
The Flyers gave up fewer goals and fewer shots than the freaking Devils that year in the regular season. Like, the Flyers may not have created the trap, and they may not have been, like, the pioneers of it, but... I'll be damned if they didn't fucking buy in and play into the bo- the 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 boringness of the NHL during that year. They were they were a stingy defensively oriented team during those years, and like I've just kind of put it out of my head that they were boring too. Well, that's why the Devils were the absolute worst thing in the world because they they were successful with their shitty boring hockey, so everyone copied their shitty boring yeah. hockey. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Yeah, there, there was the. It might have been. I think it was '03. It was the year after this. Uh, Chekmanic, Boucher, and Brodeur all split the William Jennings. Like they gave up the fewest goals in the league. It was all <laughs> three of them split it. Like it was. That's who the Flyers were at that time. What a time. Ugh. Yeah, so those are the worst games we've ever been to. Uh, Let us know yours. How about that? Hit us up on Twitter or uh, leave it in the comments on BroadStreetHockey.com under under this on the page, whatever. Just let us know the worst game you've ever been to because next week we're going to be doing the best games. Let us know those two. Maybe we'll get to you. Uh, We got anything else? I don't think so. Anything else going on in the old world of hockey? All right, that's it. That is all the time we have for you on Broad Street Hockey Radio this week. Thank you all so much for listening. Thanks for hanging out. If you haven't already, hit that subscribe button. Just search Broad Street Hockey wherever there are podcasts. Boom, you have it. No questions asked. It gets delivered to you, you know, on your uh, platform of choice. So that's it. My name is Bill Matz for Charlie and Kelly. Have a great week, everybody. Are you ready to talk about sports? Yeah!